Welcome to The Mend, a podcast for survivors and victims of crime, sponsored through the Center for Crime Victim Services here in Vermont. I'm Anna Nasset, and I am your host for this bi-monthly show. And today on the show, we have Kira Cryer here from the Center for Crime Victim Services to discuss human trafficking. Thank you for being here, Kira. Thank you. This show was created to take a deeper look at services, organizations, and concepts for victims and survivors of crime. We want to acknowledge the healing process and provide resources not only in our state of Vermont, but throughout the country that could benefit victims of crime as they begin to mend. As I, your host, and myself also a victim and survivor of crime, my healing process and how I navigate through this world is ongoing and ever evolving. I went from years from hiding from trauma to standing up and speaking out against violence and crime. I will share throughout our shows some of the resources that have helped me, but we also enjoy looking at subject matters that I don't know that much about. So I'm excited to have Kira here to educate us on this very important subject. As always, I want to begin with a trigger warning. Our goal is to create a safe place to discuss topics. But with that in mind, we may be talking about stories that have to do with crime, maybe our mental health, or talk about other sensitive subject matter. We urge you to listen at your own discretion. Today, Kira is here from the Center for Crime Victim Services to talk about one of their programs and the work they are doing and how victims and providers can access assistance. Um, Kira is a licensed clinical social worker in Burlington, Vermont, practicing social work for over 20 years. She provides individual, group, and family therapy to children, adolescents, and adults in her private practice. Kira is a certified EMDR therapist and consultant accredited by the International EMDR Association. Kira specializes in working with trauma, sexual abuse, rape, sex trafficking, missing children, victims of crime, kidnapping, car accidents, PTSD, anxiety, depression, and domestic violence, as well as grief and loss issues. Kira, thank you so much for being here today. Um, I would love to start by getting to know you a little bit better, and can you share a little bit more about your history and how you found yourself in this new role um, with the human trafficking component of the Center for Crime Victim Services? Sure. So, um, my history of social work. So, I think I always knew that um, in some capacity I wanted to help people and began my career early at, as a DCF worker outside of Philadelphia and then uh, later in life became a victim of crime myself and really felt motivated and passionate about standing up and trying to assist victims and have them have a voice and really understand why what compels people to commit crime and also to help victims at the same time. And so I think my pathway here in Vermont has really been, I started out working at the network at Clarina Howard Nichols Center, uh, which is a domestic violence, sexual violence uh, shelter agency, and received my master's, finished up my master's here in Vermont. I had begun it in uh, Pennsylvania, but then the crime had taken place and um, had to move away from Pennsylvania. So finished up here and sort of found myself searching for where is my niche, you know, where do I want to land in this work, and tried a couple things, you know, knew I didn't want to go back to uh, 
DCF or Child Protective Services and um, so tried school social work and didn't really find a fitting there and um, stayed in school social work uh, for about three years before a psychologist came to me and said, I really want you to join the pra my practice and do private practice. And I was sold, you know, awesome. like, this is what I want to do. Um, and so I would say about 10 years ago, I felt really compelled to understand the brain of like, what is the process of becoming a offender versus a victim and there's two roads right you can offend or you can heal and I really selfishly wanted to understand what that what that pathway was and so began working in the Department of Corrections and my onset was actually in grad school they had a pilot position for the IDAP program which is the intensive domestic abuse program and I was the victim advocate for that and immediately just felt really drawn to the work of wanting to understand the Department of Corrections and understand uh, mentalities and at the same time provide victim services. So I found a way to both have my private practice and uh, began studying EMDR and then also entered the DOC world. I entered as a mental health clinician, uh, which really meant, so 10 years ago, it meant something different than it does now. But at the time, it really meant, um, you know, doing psychosocials, understanding where people came from. And when I started, I was hired by an outside, it's contracted work, and I was hired to do EMDR. So I was very excited. I was working with women and really trying to understand, again, like what what's the pathway. And then a whole bunch of things changed in Vermont. Governors, things, and the women moved. And so, and the men came into the prison. And it was at that point that I really decided, okay, I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna stay. Selfishly, I wanted to like figure out what, uh, what I needed to figure out for me. I needed a why, like why something had happened to me. And so started pursuing more DOC work. What I found out is that the people who commit crimes have been victims as well. And it was a big eye-opening experience for me of that perhaps that the person who harmed me had been harmed. And there was a level of compassion that I had to have at that point. So um, then I was sort of ready, like, okay, I have my answer. And I don't really want to work with incarcerated men forever. <laughs> so, um, so the network actually um, had a program called Divas, which is discussing intimate violence and accessing support. And it's a domestic violence, sexual violence program for incarcerated women. And um, six years ago, I took that position. And... Um, it was at the same time that I had been sent to, I had been doing volunteer work for NICMIC, which is the National Center for Exploited Children. And it was at the exact same time that I went to a conference and a learning um, weekend with, I think it was actually four days at NICMIC where they taught me about human trafficking. And when I heard this woman speak about her experience with trafficking, I was shell-shocked because I had heard that story. And I had heard that story numerous times as a person in DOC working with women. 
And so taking the position with the network inside just felt like a natural fit. And I sort of brought along with me my passion around human trafficking. And now the program has a grant also funding uh, doing human trafficking work too. But that was really my onset. It was a, a personal experience that I had in my own life meeting someone whose child had gone missing and is still missing today. Um, and then I wanted to volunteer for NCMEC and then went to a training for NCMEC and then realized, oh my gosh, this is actually happening here in Vermont. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look like or sound like what people are, what I was even thinking, you know? Right. I was thinking human trafficking sound, was smuggling, right? Even that, even as a social worker who's supposed to be educated on all the things. Um, so it was an eye-opening experience and that really is what um, fostered me in this direction because at, working at CRCF and I would say, you know, there's a large percentage of women who, who are criminalized, their behavior is criminalized uh, because of their victimization. And it was there that I realized I didn't wanna just do therapy in my office, that I really wanted to do more. And I didn't know I wanted this job. You know, like, I was sitting, like, I was a part of the Vermont Human Trafficking Task Force Subcommittee for Victim Services. Mm -hmm. I had no idea, I knew the grant was coming. I had no idea until I saw the job description and immediately was like, oh my goodness, this this is me. This is what I want. That's and so awesome. that's how I landed there. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So you've been there since June, correct? Yes, June okay. 1st, yeah. Awesome. Um, so that's, I love hearing people's like very yeah. large histories and just your passion for this work and how it's evolved and you've learned. Yes. And most of us don't get into this work from the easiest of things. Right, yes. um, But it's what we do with it. Yeah. Um, so as we kind of start, could you tell our listeners um, what is human trafficking? Because yeah. it's such a broad term, and I know there's a lot of confusion around yeah. it, and even you express that in your story of how you got into this work. So just yeah. kind of the general um, description of what human trafficking is. Yeah, so I'll give you a definition. Yeah. Really. So um, the definition I like to use, um, the purpose means an action. There has to be a purpose, which would be exploitation, right? Or harboring, recruiting, uh, enticing someone. That's your purpose. Your means is force, fraud, and coercion. So for trafficking, you have to have those three things, unless it's a child. A child, you do not have to have those three things. But for adults, you have to have force, fraud, or coercion. And then there's the action, sexual exploitation, labor trafficking, slavery, those things. That is what human trafficking looks like. There are, there's labor trafficking, there's sex trafficking, there's drug trafficking, right? We're, I'm gonna try and talk about all of them, you know, mm -hmm. what sex trafficking and human trafficking and the sexual exploitation is. Um, but that is the easiest way to explain it. With children, children cannot consent to being trafficked or sexually exploited, right, but under the age of 18. So they don't have to have the force, fraud, and coercion. However, in labor trafficking with children, they do. So there's a difference there. So Wow. Yes. <laughs> so it gets a little complicated, mm -hmm. but uh, we actually in Vermont have a fantastic law. Um, one of the reasons is because we're one of the last states to create a law. But because of that, we were able to look at the federal law and also other laws in other states. And so our law is beefy, it's good, it encompasses so much, it has a strong definition of what coercion is and force so people really can understand it. 
Awesome. Yeah. Too bad that we were one of the last, but great <laughs> but that also, we have a good yes, one. Yes. Sometimes we learn by taking our yes. time. Um, so because we live here in the state of Vermont, we have listeners from all over, but um, can you tell me how human trafficking shows up in our state of Vermont and um, how that looks, we'll get into how that looks versus other states. So maybe just talk specifically about our state and yeah. how you see it appearing. So I would say, um, so for the purpose of here too, I'm just going to say that I, I'm going to genderize things. So I'm going to speak to women and children because that's mostly what we see, although men are affected and the LGBTQ communities are impacted. Also, traffickers, I'm going to speak about them as if they're male. I'm not, that's just for ease through conversation mm -hmm. and also that I want to acknowledge that it goes both ways. We have women traffickers and we have men who are victims. Um, how we see, I think in Vermont right now, we're really missing the boat on labor trafficking. The more that I, when I came into this position, didn't know a lot about it. I was sent to DC to understand the grant and again, was sort of wowed by like, oh, okay, this is what it means. And I think that we're missing the boat on labor trafficking. So labor trafficking can look like when you're promising, um, so here in Vermont, what it would look like is when you're promising someone to come um, to the U.S. to uh, perform a job and you're promising them, um, you know, this amount of money or a place to live that's going to be great. And, and it doesn't have to be someone from out of the country. That's the other mis uh, misconception with human trafficking. This is someone from right in Vermont can be trafficked, right? This doesn't have to be, you know, someone from Ecuador or someone else. It can be within our own borders. So it can be that someone's promised something and then they're, when they get the job, they're not getting that. They're not getting minimum wage or they're told, well, I brought you here, so you owe me and now you have to work off your debt. Like that's what labor trafficking looks like here. We see that with, there's some crossover too. There can be crossover with labor trafficking and sex trafficking. So if we look at massage parlors, um, just because here in Vermont we've had um, we've had a major bust happen with massage parlors, and it looked like labor trafficking at first, right? Or that they were being held and not paid, and they had to do certain things. And then a deeper investigation, uh, they're doing they're also doing things within the massage parlor that was sex trafficking, being forced to prostitute themselves. Right. Yeah. So I think. We're both we're seeing not just human trafficking, but labor trafficking and how human trafficking is really showing up here is through the opioid crisis that has really driven the market. And what I mean by that is um, <coughs> you can be coerced and manipulated into selling yourself so that you can use a drug. Right? So if you're an, uh, an addict and you're addicted to heroin and someone says to you, if you do this sexual act, I will give you the drug, there is no choice in that. There's no choice. The ch that is, you're talking about basic needs at that point, right? Mm -hmm. The basic need is I have to survive in safety and maybe even have a place to stay. I have to perform this act in order to, and that is human trafficking. So, and most recently we had... Um, a case in, it was a Vermont federal case, and uh, his name was Brian Folks, and he, we had a conviction, which is great. It's our first federal conviction in Wonderful. Vermont. Yes. Great. Um, 15 victims came forward, 
eight testified. And this was someone who used Backpage. He had sexual videos. He um, was sexually exploiting them. He used motels and photos to, um, to advertise the women. And his deal was it's a 50-50 split. Well, it's 50-50 was you, she does a sexual act. He gets 50 for setting it up. But then he gets her hooked on drugs, the coercion piece, right? Mm -hmm. He gets her hooked on drugs. So then 100% of it is his because, no, you owe me for the drugs. And I already was, the deal was I already got the 50%. Right. So she actually got no profits, right? There's no profit for her other than being coerced and manipulated and falsified information of like, oh, I promise to do this. And a lot of it is based in that love, you know, like, uh, you know, I love you, I would, I'll do anything for you, I've got you, especially with that, he had, mm -hmm. you know, manipulated girls and women into feeling good about themselves, and I've got you, and I won't let you down, those types of things, which, you know, it uh, builds someone's, uh, similar to domestic violence, that power and control model comes into play then. Yes. So um, I would say that's what we're largely seeing in Vermont is the coercion and manipulation through uh, intimate partner and also, you know, through the drug industry. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yes. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing the victory as well. Yeah. yeah. It's important. We need to have more of those. Yes. Um, so looking at Vermont compared to other states, can you share with us ways that you see human trafficking appear in other states and how listeners can be aware within their own communities? Yeah, I would say the best way is know the indicators, know the red flags. Um, they're the same in every state. Know the flags, know uh, there's great websites out there. The anti-trafficking um, through Ontario is one of the best. They have, every day they put out something, know the signs and it's a new sign. Um, What's the website? It's, it's, uh, it's actually through Twitter. Okay. So, <laughs> okay. It's called the Anti-Trafficking Ontario. Anti-Trafficking uh, Ontario, Ontario on Twitter. Yep. Okay. Um, it gives every day, like, or, you know, something like, is your, is someone, does a teenager have two phones? Does someone have um, more jewelry that is above their normal, like, income bracket? You know, knowing those signs, is someone retreating from the normal behaviors that they did? So if you have a teenager who's on Instagram all the time and then suddenly is not on Instagram, or the pictures on Instagram are changing into something different, that, that might be a sign to have a conversation, to those types of things. And my biggest thing is, you know, traffickers don't just target people. They target vulnerability and marginalized people. Mm -hmm. They're looking for vulnerable, marginalized populations. Yep. And <coughs> somehow they just know. Yep. Right. And so looking for that, like who might be vulnerable in your community, who is struggling, who can't get a job, you know, and their only means to make their to get their basic needs met, uh, food, shelter, a place to stay might be through that. Right. So looking for those types of things and. You know, traffickers manipulate into trusting them, into like, I've got your back and I love you. Uh, so being aware of that sort of, again, similar to that domestic violence dynamic that happens. But the difference between domestic violence and trafficking is in domestic violence, there's one perpetrator. And in trafficking, there is a tier of people. So you might be here, right? 
with this trafficker, but he's answering to someone and that person's answering to someone and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So in trafficking, there's multiple actors where in domestic violence, there's usually one actor. Right. right. So I would say really just knowing the signs, like runaways are at risk, um, people who have drug addiction, if you notice things are different, um, how they present themselves, are they fearful for medical providers, are they giving you a script history and not sort of deviating from the script. Um, and I notice for in my private practice how people, only because I've learned through hard lessons of who's bringing them, who's listening. Mm -hmm. So familial trafficking happens. So if the parent refuses to leave the room, ask some questions about that. Like, why is that happening? Like, why is your mom answering the questions before you? You know, those types of things. And why is your uncle always with you? Like, really inquiring about those sort of red flags that come up in some people, you know, anything that gives people a gut reaction. We've moved so far away from listening to our intuition and I'd love to guide us back there. Like, right. anything that gives you a gut reaction. I just had someone from Newport this morning say, I saw your talk last week and I had a gut reaction to it. And I was and as soon as she told me everything, I was like, oh my gosh, this is a case. Yes. Like so listen to the gut. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Our guts generally veer us right. Yes, they do. Um so can you tell us, we're gonna switch a little bit into the work that the center mm -hmm. is doing. Um, but can you tell us about the human trafficking grant that the Center for Crime Victim Services has just gotten or yeah. just kind of begun? Uh, what services it provides, who's involved, how the community can engage. Yeah, just like the different players that are all involved and how, how this is going to look in our state. Yeah. Um, I definitely took some notes because I didn't want to forget anything because that <laughs> yes. has not been part of uh, the process from day one. Okay. So the um, Vermont Human Trafficking Task Force has existed for 10 years. And I've only been part of that task force the last three okay. at, in my position uh, of divas. So the beginning initiative was out of the U.S. Attorney's Office and the Attorney General's Office. And so that was where it began. And then the steering committee now of the Human Trafficking Task Force has three co-chairs. So, And that consists of Cindy McGuire from uh, the Attorney General's Office, Andrew Gilman from the U.S. Attorney's Office, and Aaron Stewart, who's a clinical psychologist and um, has expertise in human trafficking. So they're the three co-chairs. They're sort of guiding, and I would say that Aaron was a piloter of the grant, um, just she's from amazing. yeah, just for <laughs> she's absolutely amazing. A wealth of knowledge in that in that um, brain of hers, but so I think she was the spearhead just from me, sort of witnessing it as someone sitting at the table. And now the steering committee consists of various organizations, and that looks like the Vermont Network, the Center for Crime Victim Services, Give Way to Freedom. Um, two victim advocates, both from the USA's um, office and the USG, uh, Vermont State Police, and DCF. Then we have a larger task force system, which has many players, the Department of Labor, um, Mercy Connections, Prevent Child Abuse Vermont, so many different players coming together to the table to really, how are we gonna tackle human trafficking in Vermont? That's what this grant is about. How, okay. What are we gonna tackle? And what are the needs? It's collaborative, so different from most grants where you are you can sort of do what you want. This is uh, a collaborative agreement with 
the Bureau of Justice and the Office for Victims of Crime. So they have deliverables that they give to you and that we have to abide by. So we have three years. This is, we're already like halfway through year one, about to go into year two, even though I was just hired. So we have a little mm -hmm. bit of catching up to do. And largely that's like hiring stuff and also the federal government had a freeze for a little bit, so the money wasn't there. I don't know if people remember that, that happened in January, so. Oh, we remember. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So the Vermont State Police and the center were awarded the grant. Both agencies were on the task force already. So those two agencies were awarded the grant. And out of that grant came three positions. My position, I'm the victim services director. And uh, Roz Renfrew, she is the human trafficking task force coordinator. So her job is to coordinate all of this um, in terms of policy, procedures, mm -hmm. making the meetings happen, um, organizing subcommittees. And then we have Sean O'Connell, who is our newest member. He's probably about four weeks in, I think. He is the law enforcement liaison. And so his job is to connect with law enforcement agencies across the state and develop trauma-informed uh, interviewing and hoping to that we're all doing the same thing across the state awesome. in terms of investigations and prosecutions. So um, so we've only been a full team for a month. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we're getting there though. Um, and how people could get involved is the we have subcommittees so we have a victim service subcommittee we have a labor trafficking subcommittee we have a policy subcommittee and we have a training and outreach committee and so each one of those so the victim service committee i'm the chair of and so we're talking about confidentiality how do we best serve victims how do we not lose sight of the victim right victim centered is about not losing sight of the victim Yes. Uh, and keeping that in the forefront. How do we talk about, um, you know, how do we talk with law enforcement when we have confidentiality? If we have crisis worker privilege, how do we connect with law enforcement? Like, those are the projects that we're working on. Um, the labor trafficking is, uh, I'm also the chair of, we have our first meeting in December. Uh, we're bringing someone in to speak about labor trafficking who has more knowledge than us. Her name is Erin Albright. Uh, and she is from New Hampshire and she's coming in to talk to all of us about it. How might we handle it better? W who are the people we need to have at the table for that? Uh, and, and hoping to really look at that at a, in a deeper way. Mm -hmm. And policy is Roz's niche. She's looking at developing policy. What is it look like how do right now she's working on media policy like how do we what are the things that we're doing so for 10 years this human trafficking task force has operated with no policies and procedures just and not even part of it this isn't even their job they're just doing it out of the goodness of them mm -hmm. so that's a lot right that people right. have just taken on things so this grant is really the first three years around organizing and collaborating with partners and figuring out what what assessing like what do we need in our communities what do victim needs how can we support prosecution and and at the same time provide good quality services to victims so if people want to get involved contact Roz or myself and get on a subcommittee it's the best way awesome yeah I'll get on one yes sure, great why not? yes <laughs> that sounds great yes um, so now that we understand a little bit more of what this is what is the long-term goal yeah. for this human trafficking grant in our state? 
um, what do you maybe not envision, but what is what are what are some of the goals that you all are setting um, yeah. moving forward? So I would say fresh out of the gate, victim services, right? That I mean, that's also if law enforcement was here, they might say different, but I'm gonna say victim services and prosecutions, yep. right? Like figuring out how to do that. So the first three years, if we meet all the deliverables, we can get another three years. And at that three years, that money is for developing the services. And then if we do all those deliverables, there's another three years. So in total, it's nine years, okay. a possibility of nine years, right? Yeah. So, but I would say fresh out of the gate, what I feel um, we need to work on is providing better services for victims, looking at prosecutions, how do we do that? How do we identify victims, right? That it's not until the outreach that I've done since June of people didn't even know, like, oh, I didn't know that that is what would be happening, you know, what could be happening, or I've seen that and I didn't know that's what it was called, those types of things. So really getting the education piece out there to really educate therapists, providers, Department of Labor, the caseworkers, case managers on the ground of what does it look like so that we can really identify it. And that way we can assess like what is the need. Already in this position, the need for us would be treatment and housing, right? Treatment, housing, identification, um, and identification is a little bit different than what I just said. So women who are coming out of a trafficking situation oftentimes don't have any ID, no forms of ID. Yep. Everything is stolen from them. So that process has been such a roadblock for me through this of like women who have got, we had someone who came from Texas who had no idea and ID with her and you know finding the right channels without it taking six months has yeah. been roadblock after roadblock. So you know, really looking at how do we better, how do we give better services? How do we get them ID so that they can get their MAP medication, medical assistant treatment? So how do we get them that? How do we get, so that they can get a job or be eligible for economic services? They need identification. So that treatment, so in Vermont, we um, do not, we don't have a lot of treatment options here. Mm -hmm. And particularly if we're dealing with someone who's, you have sus substance abuse issues, if they've been to substance abuse treatment before, they oftentimes don't have a good relationship or they've you know, gotten kicked out before. Mm -hmm. They're sitting in the same circle as other people they've been trafficked with. Yep. Or someone who's still in the game or in the life so they don't feel safe telling anything. And largely, the substance abuse programs are not looking at diving into the trauma, right? And you have to dive into the trauma in order to right. heal someone who's been trafficked or to heal anybody who's had domestic violence, sexual violence, trafficking experience. So really looking at that need, the how do we provide basic needs for people who've been trafficked? The basic, our basic needs, the Maslow Triangle, like safety, how do we provide safety and housing mm -hmm. and food? Like how do we do those things? is really on the forefront for me. I want to improve that victim service response and also have that collaboration with law enforcement. You know, in the past with domestic violence and victim services, it's sort of been like one of these. Yeah. And I don't want it to be that. I want it to really be cohesive that we can work together in the best interest of a victim and also you know, have an arrest or have a prosecution. And if we can't, that it's okay. That that law enforcement isn't upset and I'm not upset, you know, that we're all just right. in it together. So I would say that is what I'm <laughs> hoping for for the future. Awesome. Yeah. I love it. 
Uh, I'm going to kind of tie a couple of these in yeah. together. Like, I mean, one of the things that I really heard from you is having that trauma-informed practice mm -hmm. and how it's so paramount. Um, so to switch gears a little bit, we see a lot of victim blaming, especially yeah. in human trafficking. Um, can you speak to how trauma plays a large part into human trafficking for victims, how you're working on having better trauma-informed practices, and Kara's already agreed to come back again and talk more about trauma with me, yes. which I'm very much looking forward to, but how trauma plays into human trafficking and how, how we can better evolve our trauma-informed practices. Absolutely. I mean, I like I said to you before, I could probably go on about trauma-informed practice for a very long time. I will geek out <laughs> right brain. along with yes. you. So I'm excited <laughs> yes. for that episode. And the brain. Um, so, I, you know, trauma-informed practice to me, I, I've broken it down into the four R's. So realize that someone has been impacted by something. Realize that that's happened. Recognize where they're at. Meet them there. Don't, don't assume something else. Just recognize. Then respond without judgment. And then resist re-traumatizing someone. The age-old thing that I still hear from people is like, so why did you do that? It's like, no. no. Why yeah. did he? Why did he? When are we going to hold offenders accountable mm -hmm. in the way that they need to be held accountable? Um, so looking at those four R's is trauma-informed, like drilling it into people's heads of like meet someone where they're at and respond effectively and know that they what they've been through was about them trying to survive, that whatever they were doing, it was meeting their basic needs and survival mode, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I think one of the things, when, when you say victim blaming, I just want, I'm gonna go off a little bit about the, go for you it. know, the um, <laughs> sort of the phrases that I've heard over the years of like, it's just sex, she deserved it, it's prostitution, she had a choice. You don't have a choice if you have nowhere to sleep. Yep. You don't exactly. have a choice. If you if you can't find a job and DCF tells you that you're going to lose your kids and that's how they interpret it, I'm going to lose my kids. I'm not saying that that's what DCF says, but that's how their interpretation is. And their interpretation is I have to do something. They're going to do that act in order to have the money to feel like, okay, I won't, right? Even though they haven't realized, like trauma messes up the brain pathways of really understanding of how that can complicate things even more. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that victim blaming of she should have known better, you know, not recognizing that someone is in an addictive cycle and maybe they can't stop, you know, trauma happens, addiction happens, then trauma happens and addiction happens, right? It's like this circle that keeps going. You yeah. use to numb out, right? So then you're then another traumatic thing happens. Guess what? You're gonna use again to numb out. So it's that constant, if people had an understanding of addiction, I think that they would better understand human trafficking too, and maybe yeah. walk away from like blaming and being like, oh, well, she's an addict. I think one of the other challenges with victim blaming is that defendant and victim duality. So you have someone who's charged with something, like maybe she was drug trafficking because she had to, yep. right? So she's drug trafficking, she has a drug sale, but also she's a victim because she didn't want to do that drug sale. Or maybe she did do that drug sale because she had to do that drug sale, right? In order for her to meet her own addiction, she had to do that, right? So oftentimes we see that duality and that puts people off of like, oh, she's a criminal, like 
yeah, we don't want to do that. So I had such an eye-opening story at um, the Vermont Victims Assistance Academy two years ago. There was a woman who came in and spoke, and that was you know, she'd been arrested for drug trafficking, mm -hmm. and the like somebody within the system identified that she had actually been human trafficked. And for me, it was just one of those. I'm like, what? I I it was a subject I had knew nothing yeah. about at the time, and really was so grateful to hear her voice and that there were people within the system that identified that and um, were able to come to her from that trauma-informed place yeah. was huge. Yeah, Because it was just something I hadn't ever thought about or put together yet. Yeah. And 70% of our emotions have a physical reaction, mm -hmm. right? So think about our brains, right? Our brain, like when you get angry, how do you respond? What happens physically to you? I clench or I yell or whatever, yeah. Right. I flame up with red, like yeah. red right away, right? Our bodies have a physical response. Well, if your body has a physical response, your critical thinking goes out the door. Right. You cannot critically think about things, right, when your body's responding. Now think about being in that hyper-aroused state all the time because your brain is scared. You're scared and you think you're gonna die all the time. So you're living in hyperarousal, right? So that 70% is now at 90% and there's no way to calm yourself down. Yes, I understand that oh so well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh so very well. Yes. Yeah. It's hard to deactivate the brain when you're hyper aroused. When, you know, almost everybody has had an anxiety attack in their lifetime. You know, mm -hmm. some sort of panic or anxiety like <gasps> feeling. How, if you can think about that moment and how hard it was to talk yourself off the ledge, that's what I'm talking about. Someone who's living on the ledge, right? Yep. That they can't, their body is constantly like, I might die, I have to do this. So yeah. that critical thought process isn't going to happen. They're, what, see, they're not going to do the things you want them to do, right? Like if you're telling them to show up at an appointment or, you know, come to Thanksgiving dinner and they don't show up and you're sort of, you know, someone is like, I don't know, I do all these things for her and she never shows up. Yeah, because that's the last thing she's thinking about, yeah. right? She's traumatized and all she can think about is the next moment, the next foot in front of her. Mm -hmm. So if you're telling her to go to an appointment, that's out the door before she even left your house because yep. her next thought is, how do I keep myself safe in the next moment? Okay, have a cigarette. What's the next moment? Go get a coffee, okay. And going to have an appointment is way out of her brain at this point. So it looks like apathy, right? Or someone who doesn't wanna do anything or she doesn't really care, she doesn't <laughs> wanna get her life together when actually it's the brain responding to the trauma and mm -hmm. there's nothing left for her to do. Yeah. So that's where the like the victim blaming and the trauma sort of intersect with each other. Of it looks like this, but it's n that's not what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm very excited to talk <laughs> more with you about that. Yes. <laughs> it's a subject very near and dear to my heart. Yeah. And thank you for kind of explaining that better to our listeners. Yeah. Um, so I have Kira Cryer here. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, today from the Center for Crime Victim Services, and we've been talking about human trafficking, as well as many other subjects. Um, would you be able to, like we've been talking pretty specifically about Vermont, would you be able to pick a story from recent news that involves human trafficking and unpack it a little bit for our listeners? Okay. I left this one very open to you. <laughs> what direction yeah. you wanted to go? Yes. Uh, I, it was hard. Like, I, you know, I think um, there's a couple things that, um, that I feel important to say. So one is there is no child pornography because 
children can't consent, right? It's child sexual abuse. Right. So let's get that clear. Okay. <laughs> Media, let's get it clear. Let's get it clear, yeah. Um, I think the other part for me is that there's so many things that the media, there's so many, just recently, so many different things. R. Kelly, right? I'm just going to take R. Kelly because it's probably the least political charged one, right? Sounds good. So we all, I don't know about you, but I was probably in my 20s when R. Kelly was um, popular and I was like dancing, jamming out to his music. Absolutely. I also was watching MTV and him with Aaliyah. Aaliyah was 15. We all watched it. We mm -hmm. all watched it. Yes. And nobody did anything for her. Nobody did anything. Now, 20 years later, we're saying something about it. And Aaliyah's not even here to, to stand up or say anything differently. I don't, he was 25, 30 at the time, and she was 15. Yes. That was child sexual abuse. That it, I am so, I get so heated up and angry about the media saying young women like their children with the Jeffrey Epstein, like they were girls. Yeah, they were girls. And why are we calling them boys when they're the same age? And uh, you know, we call them boys. So why not call them girls? But there's that difference here in the media. And you know, I think we all watched it, and nobody did anything. And that's where the problem lies, right? Systemically, our our position around women has to change, like how the media represents us, how what our role in society is, has over the years been over-sexualized, and somehow we give passes to men of power for sexually exploiting women and children and sexually abusing. And that, you know, is something that I think as a collective, we all need to work on. There is a great documentary that I wanted to um, mention on this, and okay. it's called Who Took Johnny? It's on Netflix. Nick Mick, uh, the National Center for Exploited Children, uh, that was one of the first missing children, uh, Johnny. And that mother, um, I don't know how to say her last name, but it's it's Grouch, I think. She, in, in the documentary, she just went full out. She tracked what how he went missing all the way into a sex trafficking ring. Wow. Yes, it is so powerful. Who then, took Johnny? Who took Johnny? Okay. It's on Netflix, it's amazing. What's interesting is, what happens is that the media and other people start to almost gaslight her of like, you're making this up, or you know, you're, you're, you just want it to be that he's still alive. Like, it, you can really see the dynamics that the, that, it sort of shifts into her being gaslit about her situation. But she, for me, brought it, was another like eye-opening documentary of, oh, missing kids, right? Yeah. Where are they going, right? Yeah, absolutely. Where are they going? So I think, you know, just recently, I think it was just two weeks ago, there was an Arizona politician who was arrested for sex trafficking. I mean, he was taking pageant women and, putting them in the South Pacific in a rundown motel and harvesting their babies and then selling them for millions of dollars. Like, what's, so, Whoa. yeah. So we have some things to do. Like the portrayal <coughs> of women mm -hmm. has to change. And, and he's been charged, right? So this Arizona politician, he's been charged with sex trafficking, sexual exploitation, 
you know, sale of a human, all those things. But there has to be some, we have to hold society accountable for how we look at women and children and that blame and systemically unpack that. Awesome. I could not agree more. So thank you for coming on to talk about yes, that. Yeah. Um, that kind of leads me into one of my final questions. Like your passion is very evident. Um, how do you envision a future where we can start to be working on these things and shifting the paradigm and hopefully reducing human trafficking? Yeah. I, mean, I think you've said a little bit about that, but yeah, just what would, what do you envision if you could dream into it? Yeah, I think, you know, to, to end this, right, to end violence against women. Let's just breathe that in. To end violence against women, we have to educate, we have to believe survivors, mm -hmm. we have to meet people where they're at, be aware of human trafficking, what sexual assault looks like, we have to be willing to listen and provide support and educate and fundraise and be passionate and all of those things in order to eradicate violence against women. Those are the steps we need to take. And I want people to be excited about whatever your passion is, right? Whatever the passion is, be passionate about that and then do the work, like start advocating. We need, we need less people doing this, right? That right. Like, you know, and taking this and providing action for that. You know, if you feel passionate about uh, sex trafficking, do something, raise awareness, have a run, do a 5K, give, give way to freedom as the nonprofit here in Vermont, like raise money for them, do a yoga class. That's what I just did. I did a yoga class to raise money for them. So, awesome. yeah, because that's my thing. Yeah. But use what you're use passionate what about. Use what you're passionate about. You and know? keep giving voice to this. And give voice. So Speak that saying out. end violence against women isn't just so far removed right. that it could actually be. Right. a real thing. And yeah. yeah, I love that. I think just doing what we're passionate about is such a tremendous place to start. Yeah. Because we all have our gifts and our <laughs> the things yeah. we love. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, even if you are spending all the time right. on your social medias, you can use that as a tool too. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I'm a constant retweeter. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like retweet, retweet, retweet. I'm always shocked on like, I mean, I very rarely share on my personal page, but you know, if I share an article having to do with sexual assault, very few people will regard it. Yeah. If I share a picture of my dog, everyone's going to lose their mind. Right. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Can we just lose our mind about women? Yeah. Can we just? I actually lose will our sometimes, like on my business page for for stand up resources, I will post a picture of my dog and like tie it into something right. pertaining there to my go. work, just to That's be like, good does marketing. this does this work or not? <laughs> yes, it totally yeah. does. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, but that's, um, yeah, so use your skills. Yeah. Um, so this has been amazing and such a huge wealth and I'm very excited that you're gonna come back on yes, in the too. new year. Are there any main points? I mean, this is a subject we could talk about mm -hmm. for hours and so thank you for giving us an overview, but are there any main points that you feel like we left out today? Mm. I don't think main points. I mean, I think, Educating yourself, know the signs, you know, and, under, you know, create an understanding 
Don't say it doesn't happen here. It's happening here. It's happening here. It all here. happens here, people. Yes, it's mm -hmm. happening here. So um, I think really understanding that it is happening here and, you know, we don't have exact data yet for this next year, but even KDG, who is the human trafficking case manager, she had reported um, in a short period of time of already working with 54 survivors. So it's happening, right? Yeah. And that's only people that we've identified because the education isn't out there. Yeah. So it's a yeah. small state. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Yeah. That's a lot of people. Yeah. So keep informing each other. Yes, yes. absolutely. Um, so Kira, it's been such a great time having you here today. The work you were doing is not easy and thank you for dedicating your life to it. It's really thank you. inspiring and humbling. So thank you for sharing with us. Yeah. Uh, Kira's here with the Human Trafficking Program at the Center for Crime Victim Services. Uh, you can get more information at the Center for Crime Victim Services website. Or um, what was the other, the nonprofit here in our state? Give Way to Freedom. Give Way to Freedom yeah. would be another great place to yeah. get research or get information. Um, I always like to close with a positive message. Yeah. Is Love there that. one parting thought? For listeners today, whether they're victims or survivors of crime or those helping yeah. them, who knows who's listening. So, yeah. yeah. I, um, whatever you're going through, you are not alone and you are important. Uh, whether you're depressed or anxious or feeling like you don't quite fit in, uh, you are not alone. I think that you're important and I don't even know you. And if you can just push through the darkest moments of our lives, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. I promise that there is always a light at the end of the dark. And knowing that you are important and you are worth it and you have something to give back to this universe is the most important message. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> yes. It's like go home and quietly weep. <laughs> it's really good. Um, so that does it for this week. Thank you again, Kira, Thank for you. joining us. Um, if you have any questions or ideas, you can always email me, Anna at StandUpResources.com. I'm your host, Anna Nasset, here with the Center for Crime Victim Services on the MEND. Be well, be strong, and we'll see you next time.